0: From Guildford comes a strange but well-attested piece of news. A poor woman who lives at Godalming, near that town, was about a month past delivered by Mr. John Howard, an eminent surgeon of a creature resembling a rabbit, but whose heart and lungs grew outside its belly. About 14 days since, she was delivered by the same person of a perfect rabbit, and a few days after, of four more. And on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the 4th and 5th and 6th instant, of one in each day in all nine the woman hath made oath that two months ago while working in a field with other women they put up a rabbit who running from them they pursued it but to no purpose this created in her such a longing to it that she being with child was taken ill and miscarried and from that time she hath not been able to avoid thinking of rabbits
1: Hi, I'm Alexa Sand.
0: And I'm Ian McInnis.
1: And this is Real Fantastic Beasts.
0: Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today.
1: Uh, This story, Ian, I'm partly scratching my head and partly feeling really sorry for this woman (laughs) who clearly had a really traumatic experience she miscarried and then possibly had some kind of, some kind of child with severe birth defects, the heart and lungs outside the body. But then it gets crazy. It gets fantastic, actually. It's probably the best word for it. <laughs> Tell me more about this.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I remember when I sent you the story that your first comment was that that poor woman, which is, it's funny in part because this is a, an example of a hoax from the very late early modern period. It comes from about 1726. And this woman's name is Mary Toft, who became known as the Rabbit Woman of Godalming because of this story. Now, you're right. It it could actually have arisen from, you know, a miscarriage that she had, but she certainly capitalized on that. And it became a kind of a famous story, partly because the royal surgeon basically attested the truth of this. And so from the highest levels, doctors were saying, of course, this could, you know, this could happen, this has happened. And when it was found out that it was all a hoax, the whole medical establishment took a real beating, as you might imagine. You know, imagine if Dr. Fauci suddenly said that some woman delivered rabbits, that would not look good for the medical establishment. So, you know, it was a, it was a big scandal and it became a kind of a byword for the results of superstition. But, you know, I picked it, even though it comes from very late in the period, because it it really captures several, it kind of pulls together several different threads. The reason it was believed has something to do with rabbits, ultimately. Uh, partly it has to do with this idea of the maternal imagination. You know, she saw a rabbit, couldn't stop thinking of rabbits, and therefore, like, gave birth to rabbits, which is... A reference to this idea of the power of the maternal imagination, which was certainly Absolutely. a medical belief in the period, yeah. right? And I'm I'm sure you like you encounter this. It's a ancient idea, right? Like that you think about something and it will affect the the development of the child. It will affect what the child looks like today. It's an
1: ancient idea with legs, Ian. I uh, <laughs> I had a friend years ago who's Italian and her baby was born with a birthmark and it was sort of the shape and size of a coffee bean and color of a coffee bean. And her mother-in-law explained this to her as a thing called a voglio or a wish Uh that she had thought too much of coffee because she had sworn off coffee while she was pregnant. Therefore, the baby was born with a birthmark that resembled
0: a a coffee bean bean. No, this is not a uh,
1: rabbit exactly, but you know the same idea basically, alive and well in the twenty first century in in Italy.
0: Well, I mean, there certainly there there was this belief that the cravings that women had during pregnancy, the word I mean we would call it a craving, but in England at least they call it called it a a longing, right? So like mm-hmm. that desire for something, and birthmarks were actually also called longing marks. So like mm-hmm. literally. A birthmark is a mark of the longing that you have during pregnancy. So, old idea, right? Clearly has, as you say, has legs. So that idea is out there. So it seems plausible in many ways to people at the time. Yeah. You also have, I think, to this day, it is common, uh, and you can you can you can say whether this is true of you, but that it is common during pregnancy to have dreams of delivering, you know, kittens or. Uh, or maybe rabbits or like i don't know like there's these um kind of pregnancy dreams about delivery of non-human things. Uh, did that did that ever happen to you?
1: No, it didn't. But I will say um it clearly happened to EB White's wife his his uh, Stuart Little seems to me <laughs> the sort of, you know, expansion of that kind of uh of a fantastic dream or fantasy in the Freudian sense. Fantasy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I, was, I, I, mean, I trolled the
0: internet a little bit to see, you know, how common yeah. is this? And I mean, there, there's a lot of accounts like this. Huh. Uh, and uh, there's, there's a, a website where somebody is collecting all the accounts of these kinds of of dreams. Oh, yeah. So, so that's a psychological reason why any, you know, somebody in, you know, any, any woman might be like thinking about like, well, sure. Like, Like, well, what if, you know, like, what if this (laughs) might happen? But then, of course, the rabbit thing is that rabbits have always been associated with sort of fertility, reproduction in all sorts of ways, which remains with us today. So, yes, yes. I thought the story is great because it kind of combines like so many of these kind of elements into a completely fantastic story. Um, She, by the way, she was, when they found out that it, that it was... You know, a hoax. She was she was briefly arrested, but they never they never charged her with anything. They just sent her home, and you know, because it was it was clearly not not just her. You know, it was not just her that was involved in this whole hoax, but all these doctors kind of piling on and saying, "Of course, it could happen."
1: Right. I mean, I want to know what happened to the rabbits, but that's another story for another time. I mean, it's true that this idea about rabbit fertility is very very old. Um, we find it in sources from classical antiquity um, and it's of course in the medieval bestiary tradition we hear not actually all that much about rabbits they're not you know they don't get a nice long section like a tiger or you know an ape they get a pretty brief mention but it's mentioned that they are hunted by dogs they're very fertile there's a little bit more about hares which are you know a slightly different animal um though not always distinguished one from the other in either modern or medieval sources. Right. Um, and it's mentioned that hares run very fast and are timid. Probably the most interesting thing about hares, too, though, has to do with gender and sex um, because it's claimed that hares are hermaphrodites. They are male and female whenever they want to be or whenever needs must, so they can they can switch. Good lord. Um, yeah, so those two things, like clearly rabbits do have this long connection to sex and sexuality. And I, I would add that, you know, in the Middle Ages, the word for rabbit, whether you were speaking French or German or or English or just about any other European language, the word for rabbit came from a, a Latin word. And that Latin word is cuniculus. Which and is still the,
0: it's still the Latin name for...
1: Rabbit. Right? Mm-hmm, yep. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, coniglio in Italian or conejo in Spanish. They're even, but like it's not just the Romance languages. It's also languages like Breton and Dutch have words derived from the Latin root. So uh, I believe the Breton word, I'll probably say this wrong, is conifle. And uh, <laughs> the word in Dutch is Konijn, And I, the word in German is similar. So The word, the most common word that you're going to find or the words that you're going to find in medieval sources come from this Latin word. And this is not me avoiding the topic of sex and sexuality. This is me saying, I'm going to say that Latin word one more time. Um, It is cuniculus, hmm? Yes, yes. (laughs) In all of these languages, that word or a shortened version of that word in English, the shortened version is coney, comes to mean both rabbit and female pudenda. So basically, the rabbit is an animal representation of the vagina. There, I said it.
0: There, You said it. Uh,
1: <laughs> <yeah>, but... <laughs> and, and that, you know, really, when we talk about medieval discussions of rabbits or, or medieval fantasy about rabbits that's where it that's where it sits it sits firmly in this space of the sort of sexualized imagination and and furthermore going back to the bestiary the rabbit is hunted by dogs right so that hunting of the rabbit becomes a metaphor for sexual pursuit so there are these stories in french and in german that are kind of nasty stories dirty stories, I should say, called Fablio or Maxson and these stories frequently involve rabbits, like people using rabbits actually as you know the object of their sexual longings, and in some pretty comical ways, but also in more sort of respectable literature, if you want to call it that. The Roman de la Rose, for example, in that story, in that very long allegorical poem about love and and desire the poem describes a young man who goes out and he's looking for his lover and he's he's uh out on the road and he sees this young virgin and he asks her you know what are you doing and she says oh i'm looking for my bunny, my rabbit my coney and he says oh i'll find your coney for you (laughs) you know that kind of thing um so that's the main way in which rabbits show up in medieval literature as a sort of allegorical figure or a, a metaphor for vaginas it's nice huh um and even sometimes the stories are you know in a sense about virginity um as in that case there's a story about a an Irish saint, her name, well, she's actually a Welsh saint, but her origins are Irish. That is, she's an Irish princess. Her name's Melangel, and she runs away from her home in sometime in the sixth or seventh century to Wales to become a hermit in the woods. And she's living in the woods, an unprotected young virgin as a holy hermit, praying all the time. And this prince, this Welsh prince is out hunting Yes, hunting. And his dogs chase a hare into the thicket, and he follows, and he finds the hare trembling under her skirts. <laughs> yes. Right. And, uh, you know, because he's a good guy, instead of pursuing the hare further, he gives her the land that she's camping on, basically, to set up a monastery and become a more respectable kind of nun. And she is the patron saint of rabbits and hares.
0: Of well, of course she is. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> so I mean, these stories seem pretty. I mean, they're body, but not. Um, they don't. They, they seem to sort of push it not too far. I mean, it's a kind of a you know, cl- they're clearly elusive, right? In the way that they are using the, the rabbit to represent the vagina or sexuality in general, but it's pretty mild, right?
1: Well, the examples I've given you are fairly mild. Ah, Yes, some of those fablio get really outrageous, but and they're funny, but they're also pretty violent sometimes in terms Uh of you know the violation of the animal or the and I mean remember that rabbits are a food animal as well And, and they sort of exist in this weird space between the the domesticated animals and wild animals because. In most places and for most of the Middle Ages, although they can be kind of farmed in a way, I guess, they're, they're, you know, there's a whole practice of rabbit culture called cuniculture. But the way in which they're kept is more a kind of contained wildness than a real domestication. That is, for most of the Middle Ages, there's not a lot of evidence that people were breeding rabbits or keeping them in very um,
0: close quarters close right.
1: quarters. That yeah. is to say there would be these warrens and there would be somebody whose job it was to sort of keep predators away and, and poachers away, a warrener in English. And, and these warrens were called in, in Middle English were called garths. Mm-hmm. Um, so a rabbit, a coney garth. Um, the word rabbit actually doesn't come into English until about the 14th century.
0: Isn't it? It's, a, it's originally a French word,
1: Well, French-ish. It's a Walloon dialect word uh, for a young, for a young, for a young
0: rabbit, and that's what it. That's what it. Yeah, that's what it certainly starts as. It's like just for young rabbits. Yeah. So the rabbits were. There's at least one archaeologist or zoo archaeologist, and I guess it's been suggested in other ways as well. But this idea that that rabbits were they were never wild in. England and even in Northern France, they weren't, they were never wild, right? So they were, um... no, they're
1: not endemic to those regions. They were, they were brought. So that's why I say they were sort of in this weird space between being, you know, a domesticated animal, like a sheep or a, or a cow and a wild animal, because basically what people would do is capture them and bring them in sort of colonies and then release them into a, into a sort of rabbit environment. Now, there so were there, definitely monks who kept rabbits in these um, sort of rabbit lodges. But again, they didn't really manage the popular I mean, if you want to make more rabbits, just put some rabbits together. This is something we know about rabbits, right? Yes, like the, exactly. The expression is not breeding like rabbits for no reason. So
0: that, um, but that I mean, also
1: that, makes it hard to manage their breeding, right?
0: It's- it's fascinating though because it, it means I mean I guess you'd call it naturalizing right now, so yeah. you introduce and naturalize mm-hmm. and I was yeah. thinking we've do this we've done this to the pheasant in the in the US right which is not a native it was sort of released in order to hunt but the right. rabbits are being they're much closer right they because they're being kept in the warrens and mm-hmm. uh you know predators are being kept away there's a lot of direct mm-hmm. intervention so it's a it's kind of an interesting chapter in the history of, of domestication, which is a really contested and interesting topic.
1: Um, yeah, to To absolutely. talk about, you
0: know, is a rabbit a domestic animal or is it a wild yeah. animal, given the fact yeah. that it, it's introduced as wild, but then protected as, as if domestic.
1: Right, and you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned this issue of sort of zoo archeology. span For a long time, people believed that rabbits had not been brought to england prior to the norman conquest that they came over with the normans essentially and that were part of sort of norman cultural practice you know rabbits are indigenous to spain we know the romans noticed that even the phoenicians noticed it. there's some speculation that the name hispania is derived from a phoenician word for rabbit but that that's pretty speculative um
0: not (laughs) ridiculous
1: yeah but we know that um that this isn't true because a while back, about 10 years ago, some archeologists in England identified a bone from a Roman site, from a Roman villa as a rabbit bone. And then that was followed by further discoveries of rabbit remains in Roman sites across England. So clearly the Romans had rabbits when they were in England, there was evidence um, that these animals weren't being kept for meat or fur, which is their largest value, really. They were being kept as pets. So, you know, there's just no sign that these bones were butchered. So I guess that's really interesting. In the Gallic Wars, uh, Julius Caesar mentions that the Gauls had rabbits, but that the Britons consider it contrary to divine law to eat chickens or hares and kept them only for their amusement and pleasure. So (laughs) I feel like that suggests that there's also this other relationship with rabbits and bunnies that like rabbit fanciers are not a new thing that maybe back as far as Roman times, but maybe also in the middle ages, people occasionally kept rabbits as pets, despite the value that was placed on both their meat and their pelts.
0: In the early modern period, there's a, a law that says that uh, rabbits must only be sold along with poultry, right? So, like the poultry seller is also the rabbit seller. They're classified mm-hmm. with chickens, which may date back to that earlier period. I know zoo archaeologists have a lot of trouble with, with rabbits and rabbit bones because the one thing we know about rabbits is that they like to dig. And so when you find a rabbit bone in a lair, there's an awful lot of rabbit bones that have to be discounted because you don't, mm-hmm. you can't prove that they didn't dig dig down there and then die in right. the burrow, right? right? Happily in the middle of your Roman lair. Uh, <laughs> so there's a yeah. lot of stuff that gets uh, like excluded. Um, and then there's the question of, well, so the Romans in Britain had some rabbits. How many, you know, did it, did they naturalize? Did they stay there Yeah. Uh, because there aren't many rabbit bones to be found um yeah. in say Anglo Saxon sites. They're just they're they're just yeah. not. And they're so and a lot rare. of those are probably later rabbits that have burrowed down. So, yeah. you know, it's possible I I know at least one zoo archaeologist who still says that, you know, the, the real spread of rabbits in the in northern France and England occurred like long after the Normans, you know, like a, mm. a century later during the uh, like the eleven seventies or eleven eighties, which is Really, like
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's an interesting point because it sort of coalesces with something that I was looking at. You may be aware that the fantastic rabbit, not, not the real rabbits who leave their bones in their burrows, but in the world of fantasy, um, medieval manuscripts have a very high rabbit population.
0: I was going to ask you about that.
1: But only after about the last quarter of the 12th century. So the earliest example i could find of this what came from a monastic uh, service book from germany in the 1170s called the arnstein passional and there there's a pair of rabbits and they're standing on their back legs and they're jeering at a hunter who's being hung from like an initial the bar of an initial T. so it's a an illuminated initial and these rabbits are mocking the hunter who, who presumably they've hung. There's gotta be some kind of folklore element to this. You know, We don't have the written evidence, but the visual evidence is there that there's this kind of story about rabbits who hang the hunter, a kind of animal fable. And that shows up again and again and again, most famously perhaps in the Smithfield Decretals, which are, it's a manuscript of church law It was made in London in the 1340s. And there's a whole series of little illustrations at the bottom of the page in that manuscript depicting these rabbits taking their revenge first on a hunter Uh and then on his dogs. On the dogs. (laughs) So they're pretty vicious rabbits. And it's a kind of you know, reversal of the normal order of things. And, and people have noticed that that often happens in these marginal images. There's, um on Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, in the uh, decorative program of the portal, there's an image of a hunter, or a knight, sorry, running away from a hare, which is an allegory of cowardice, because normally, As I mentioned at the beginning, hares are timid and they flee. And this idea that rabbits and hares are cowardly is like baked right into the word coward itself. Because in the Roman de Renard, the um, stories of the fox, Renard, the sort of trickster character, the name of the hare is Coach, Coach is the root of the English word coward. Coward, Um, yeah. So, and, you know, there's this great story about how Renard the fox tells the king about how he valiantly defeated this terrible monster and, um, you know, here's its head and he holds up the head of the hare that he's hunted down and eaten. And I, I think that that story actually is a sort of an early forerunner of the story of the rabbit of Carbonach, And you knew we couldn't do an episode on rabbits without mentioning the rabbit of Carbonach. Tell you know, me more is, about
0: the rabbit of Carbonach.
1: This is a terrifying monster um, with nasty, big, pointy teeth and a vicious streak <laughs> a mile wide um, that can only be destroyed if you have in your possession the holy hand grenade of Antioch. <laughs>
0: Monty Python and the Holy Grail you can use it absolutely at, you can it. use it everywhere in in medieval studies <laughs> uh, and you it's can always amazing and how should. smart it is right because
1: absolutely like
0: that uh sort of mockery of the terrifying rabbit it's that's right out of medieval manuscript animal inversion of, in the margins oh
1: absolutely and I swear to you if you look at this um panel from the the, the allegory of cowardice from the. Portal at Notre Dame. It's it's a series of allegories of virtues and, and vices. Anyway, the allegory of cowardice. It really looks like a scene from Monty Python. There's this uh, knight with his sword is running away you know, from the rabbit. <laughs> in, in classic, and the rabbit is like leaping out and you know attacking him from behind a bush. So it it really is pure Monty Python.
0: Yeah. Also, uh, I think then you know like rabbits and humor. Because you have the, you have body, but it's always body humor, right? In these Mm -hmm. kind of elusive stories. And then the rabbit becomes the mocking hero of uh, an inverted story where the rabbit chases the dog or the rabbit chases the hunter. Or the rabbit, you
1: know, is, is done up as a knight mounted on a snail and is jousting. Jousting. With a dog. It's,
0: It's like, know the the opportunity for humor maybe because it's i guess one of the smallest sort of uh, legitimate prey animals it is interesting that they're putting rabbits in warrens and using them for food and fur but then all these images are also about hunting so like clearly they were released to hunt right or like made available for hunting
1: Um, yeah and i don't know i mean again i'm not really clear on Hares and rabbits have me a little confused, Ian, because, like, for example, Gerald of Wales, in his description of Wales, and this is like in the early 13th century, writes that there are a great number of hares in Wales, but they are of a small breed, much resembling rabbits in size and the softness of their fur. So, are those rabbits or the hares? Are there are rabbits not indigenous, but hares are? I guess I. I I kept trying to get to the bottom of those questions and not really getting there because of the medieval confusion between rabbits and hares and hares as well.
0: Yeah. But if you ever run into a hare, which actually you have desert hares I think out in Utah. They're they're quite they 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 do seem quite a bit different <laughs> than
1: They are. They are. And you know you, you mentioned rabbits burrowing. Hares don't burrow. They they nest and they nest generally above ground, I mean. At least not they don't dig warrens. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they were hunting hares and warning rabbits. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't find an answer to that one. I can't speak maybe, maybe
0: Maybe we'll have to do a whole episode on hares, although given the small <laughs> entries on rabbits, <laughs> and yeah. the confusion between them, it's maybe mm-hmm. hard to do that. All of this medieval kind of rabbit stuff continues in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I guess it becomes sort of more intense. So, like one thing you have in the 16th century is that the joke about the the word for rabbit, like just it just becomes so common, so pervasive that it's always available. And so, okay, the word in English which we have is today. If if you use the word, you spell it c o n e y, right? Mhm. And you pronounced that. Coney, right?
1: Mm-hmm. As in
0: Coney Island, which, mm-hmm. by the way, probably doesn't have anything to do with rabbits, but it does have a lot to do with the pronunciation of the word itself. Mm-hmm. Well, that pronunciation, Coney, is totally modern. Right? Like ah. past past our period. Because
1: mm-hmm.
0: in English up until the 19th century, and I can explain <laughs> there's a little story as to how we, you know, like why we say Coney Island um, today, but the word would rhyme with M-o- M-O-N-E-Y <laughs> and H-O-N E Y, often the same verse. So you have, you know, like right. honey, right? Money and Cunny. Uh-huh. And if you if you pronounce it that way you get a lot closer to hearing why the, you know why this is a scandalous word.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is why I promise not to uh, not to introduce that. <laughs>
0: So this is a here's this is a little passage uh, you know like a, here, here's some here's some early modern kind of references so this is from Haywood uh, in around 1560 and this is a reference by the way to the, the the fact that rabbits were sold along with chickens right so they're considered to be poultry mm-hmm. so he says uh, Jane thou sellst sweet cunnies in this poultry shop but none so sweet as thyself sweet cunny mop. What is the price of thee? Forsooth she told at what price soever myself shall be sold. Strange is the hearing for war or for money to hear a woodcock cheapen a cunny. So like hit the word many times, (laughs) but he's literally saying to the poultry wife, you know, like, so what's your price? And you sell sell cunny in this shop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it always rhymes with with those things, and you even have uh, like early dictionaries will say like no it's pronounced as if it were k u n n e e right <laughs> you know it's it's yeah that's that's what's gonna be yeah
1: uh lovely
0: lovely, <laughs> but so that the word that we're dancing around you know which sometimes people refer to as the c word it's just another way of dancing around the the word itself mm-hmm. in it was not always at quite as scandalous as it is today. So it it has gotten progressively more obscene. You have medieval Mm -hmm. references using the word that almost, uh, they will treat it anatomically, right? Like, well, it's just Mm -hmm. a reference. Like, it's just another word for the vagina. There we go. Like, we'll we'll do that, Mm -hmm. which results in all this joking, but it doesn't have the charge that it has today. So on the air with our listeners, we're not going to be able to say that word. Uh, Right. but, But that's a change that's happened over time. And it is, it's clearly intensifying a little bit during the early modern period but they have a higher tolerance for body language it's not just shakespeare who uses body language it's it's everywhere i mean queen elizabeth appreciated body jokes queen victoria not so much so mm-hmm. thing, things mm-hmm. they're they're changing there and they they worried a little bit about the sound of the word mm-hmm. so Here's a right this is a uh like a 18th century writer says there are some words of harmless signification yet carry in their sound something of obscenity as cunny for rabbit etc <laughs> right mm-hmm. so they're recognizing that this 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 is sort of by 16- 1753 which is when that was written that this is mm-hmm. now a problem right like this is a, this is a, a problem that they're kind of uh working on mm-hmm. and This is around about the time when the word, which we say coney, right? Which Mm -hmm. is a more polite pronunciation of that word, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, became, first of all, it became synonymous with rabbit. So rabbit used to mean a young individual of the species Mm -hmm. and a a cunny wasn't an an adult, but Mm -hmm. then they sort of became equivalent. So people could, you know, you have a lot of, well, you know, rabbit or cunny, right? So they're now equivalent. And then around the middle of the 18th century, rabbit takes off. There's lots more rabbits and Cunny just slowly fades away. And it's probably a product of this fact that rabbit was a more polite word for the, the species. And once it became synonymous, then you could use it, you know, wherever you want, which is why, which is sort of why, why they became rabbits, right? Like why we have rabbits today uh, because of this, because of that process. And then in the 19th century, they started worrying even about the existence of, of, the, of the word itself, which is, you know, it's in Shakespeare, it's in a lot of places. So you could change, you could change it to rabbit sometimes. But mm-hmm. the biggest problem was the Bible because they got a little nervous about we're just replacing words in the Bible with a more convenient word. And the mm-hmm. word C-O-N-E-Y appears frequently in the Bible. So in some time in the 19th century, uh, they start saying, well, we just have to say it differently. Like literally, Um, there's a dictionary in 1836, Benjamin Smart, where he says this is how we're going to pronounce this word because it is more polite to do so. And we're going to say Coney. And that's how it's going to be. It's going to be Coney. It's not going to be Coney anymore. Uh, And that's that's the reason why uh, Coney Isle, which in earlier versions, if you look at maps and things, is clearly spelled that it's pronounced Coney, right, becomes Coney Island. By virtue of the same thing, even though it probably doesn't have much to do with rabbits, or it might, you never know. But that's why that's why we say Coney Island, is because it's this nineteenth century thing because they couldn't get rid of the, the, the Conies in the Bible, but they could make them more polite by changing the way you say it.
1: That is such a fascinatingly anglophone and anglified yes. yep. story about a word. Because, you know, the word in French, doesn't have the same history, you know, I mean, it remains in the literature and it remains, how shall I say it, it, it continues to mean both things.
0: It does. Although, you know it, what I'm saying? In French, it's, I mean, it. so it's, it's vulgar, but it, it is not, it's not as vulgar as it is exactly. in English, right? Because exactly. people will toss it off, uh, you know, just to mean like idiot or you know like exactly even just exactly. like at the end of words
1: and i feel like it's one of those words that when i was a teenager learning french like learning french that other teenagers spoke um i didn't even know what it meant <laughs> other than just like idiot yes right <laughs> and it probably. was i mean the realization eventually dawned on me but and and it's actually one of the one of those words that you come across when you're when you're studying the development of of French literature, of romance literature, but specifically sort of the, the story of French literature, begins with the troubadours back in the 11th, 12th century. And there's this very famous poet who's, you know, William of Aquitaine. He's, he's a nobleman and a poet. And one of his most famous poems is basically all about this word, not in the sense of rabbit. <laughs> it's a great... Po- I mean, it's a horrible poem, but it's a it's <laughs> it's about a sort of um, libertinism. I guess you could call it anachronistically, and the law, a law in which uh, this word con
0: See, you there know, we can say it in Are French, free? Right?
1: Oh yeah, I can totally say it. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll read the line in French. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Qui uh, en premier garde con con non estes? Why didn't the first Cunny Warren dropped dead. <laughs> like the the idea of a, a warden of cunnies.
0: Yes, oh, there you go. <laughs>
1: at issue there, it's it's against the the cunny wardens. <laughs> there, see, by using the the um, archaic English pronunciation, I can I yeah. can read the uh, translation of this poem. Which, if you look it up online, the uh, the translation is the modern English word that is not tolerated.
0: Employed <laughs> company. So one thing I was unable to figure out um, is to what extent the word bunny, which is, I mean, mostly modern, but when applied to rabbits, but is but it's a word that that goes back pretty far into that. Whether that word itself is a kind of a cutesy formation by rhyme with cunny, right? Like a I think bunny. you
1: might be right. I think that might be the story there because. And this is more your wheelhouse than mine, but Shakespeare uses it, right? Yeah. And it yeah. and it looks like maybe another writer used it about a hundred years earlier, but it's somewhat contested. Uh it's uh, Skelton's poem to the um
0: Yes. Yeah. Because it could Dame. mean Bonnie, right? Or right. you know, like spell V O N N Y. Does that mean like But it's rhymed, my with,
1: but it's rhymed, rhymed with words with. that are more like money and honey. Yes. <laughs> In fact, I think honey is the rhyme. Yeah, honey, so. honey
0: bunny. <laughs> hmm. So it's, it's though We have these rhymes now, and we're just like we're missing the key term, which has been subtracted out of it. But it's interesting to think that the that bunny, which now is this sort of cute child's name for the rabbit, is the echo of the obscenity that was built into the rabbit from the very beginning. I'll never say bunny rabbit again without without having a bit of a double take,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe Bunny rabbit should be in the same sort of general linguistic um corral as pussycat.
0: yeah, yeah, which yeah, which reminds me that it's you know bunnies are not the only animal that gets attached to the vagina, <laughs> uh no, and maybe this not. is a process a western uh, this maybe this tells us something. Not so much about animals as about the way animals are getting used linguistically, and about the culture right. that, that that backs that.
1: Well, and that and that loops back to the little snippet of poetry you read, in which the poulterer's wife upbraids the customer who's propositioning her, calling him a woodcock, right? Which is a yes. very small kind of <laughs> cock, <laughs> little 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 tiny feathered cock. Yes. Yes. Um, it's interesting because we've run across this sort of interest or this sexualization or anthroposexualization of, of animals with other, with other creatures as well, of course, um, notably when we talked about the tiger.
0: Oh, so we have a listener question that we need to answer. This is about the dragons and this listener asks, when did the lizard-like European dragon appear in literature and or art? I am perhaps erroneously accustomed to the idea of East Asian dragons as serpents and wingless, while European dragons are lizard-like, dinosaur-like and winged. From your episode I conclude this dichotomy is in fact false.
1: Is it a false dichotomy? Well, it certainly oversimplifies the situation. That would be my answer, my my short answer. My long answer is This sent me down a a bit of a rabbit hole. When do we first see winged, clawed dragons in Western art? Now, I can't speak for the literary sources. Often the literary sources are silent on the exact description of the dragon. Like, it's just assumed, I suppose, that if you say dragon, you, you know what they're talking about. But... I did find that it seems that dragons had wings pretty early on. I found a, an illustration in a manuscript from uh, the Carolingian period from around 830. Um, this is a psalter and it depicts a dragon. It's really cute, actually. It's like a snake with a kind of coxcomb and wings, but no feet. But then looking at another psalter, this one from England um, in the early 11th, Century, the Tiberius Psalter, there's a depiction of Saint Michael battling dragons. And these dragons have wings and claws, so feet with claws on them. So at some point in there, between say 8:30 and 1050, we start to see dragons that look a lot like the the dragon that the listener is asking us about.
0: Huh. It is interesting because when we talked about Edward Topsell, the encyclopedist, sort of Elizabethan encyclopedist version of dragons, it's almost as if he is looking back through the various representations of dragons over time and saying, well, the, you know, like some dragons are this way and some dragons are this other way. He's not considering any real dragons. He's just looking back over every single picture of a dragon he's ever seen and treating that as if it were the the biological, the field observation, as it were.
1: Yeah, and I mean, he's compiling the lore or the knowledge of dragons that people have. And I think, you know, we talked in the episode about how there are these worms, W-Y-R-M-S, who are more um, like snakes or eels, maybe. <laughs> and then there are these other dragons that are more... Glamorous, I guess I would say, the sort of flying, fire-breathing, you know, all of that. Certainly that's the dragon from Beowulf, right? It flies around and breathes fire and clearly has scales. and right. I think the description is quite eloquent in, in the poem. So certainly by the 11th century, there's, especially in the English and, and Norse context, there's a clear understanding of a specific type of dragon that's fire-breathing, flying, scales, claws.
0: Every all the all the attributes together.
1: Yeah, smog essentially, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that and that's what J.R. Tolkien was looking at, were those kinds of depictions. If you look at like the rune stones, which are these um, Norse mm. uh, carved stone monuments that um, they're found mostly in Sweden and Norway, dragons there are depicted really more as serpents than as flying animals. So maybe there are already two kinds of dragons.
0: Right, or like combined traditions of dragons. Yeah. You know, I was I was looking through some of the beast, bestiary images and it occurred to me that we probably should distinguish between winged and flying, because if a dragon has wings, you presume it's because they can fly. But so many of the dragons in the bestiary are represented with wings, but not flying. There are very few depictions of actually flying dragons. And on the East Asian side, dragons can fly and don't need wings. So that there's yeah. flying dragons with no wings, whereas the bestiary often has a like winged dragon not using wings.
1: Right. That's that's absolutely true. And even if you look at like other things, non-bestiary uh things, especially from the 12th century, uh dragons were a very popular motif in the illuminated service books and, and the, the books that uh, monks would use for their sacred reading, you find lots and lots of dragons and they're often being deployed basically as a curvilinear letter form so that the dragon itself, its body forms the letter. And I mean, dragons are great for this because they are so sinuous. So if you have to make an S, right. for example, there's a very famous one from the Victorian Albert Museum um, in a hymnal that shows a dragon that is an S because he can get all sneaky, but he's got wings. And then one of my favorite Romanesque dragons is the dragon at the beginning of the great Cistercian manuscript from, um, from Clairvaux, the Morelia in Job. So it's a compendium of writings of the Pope Gregory the Great that was used for study writings about the book of Job. And it starts with this letter from Gregory to uh, another cleric in the 7th century. So the manuscript's from the 12th century, but the text is from the late 6th, early 7th century. And the Pope addresses his fellow bishop, his servant of the servant of God. And there's this wonderful initial R, and part of the R is the body of a dragon, and part of the R is the body of a knight who's fighting the dragon. And then the knight is standing on the back of this little servant figure. And it's actually the servant who's killing the dragon. And Ah. all of that makes up this page large image of the dragon.
0: Yeah. We'll put that image on our website for everyone. Absolutely. Well, that's about it. Although I will say if you're interested in this topic, our very next episode is going to be on the Japanese dragon. And we have a wonderful guest expert for you next time. So we'll see you in two weeks. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation.